Well, again, uh, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. I get the distinct privilege of inviting up and welcoming a good friend of mine to the stage this morning who's going to share a message. Uh, this gentleman I met in 2008, so over 10 years ago. He actually hired me into my first position on a church staff, and we became uh, great and trusted friends kind of in that moment. Uh, worked together for uh, a little short of a year, so not all that much time, uh, but stayed very, very close. And then several years later, he actually came on staff here. So uh, kind of a student becomes the teacher situation in the fact that I got to hire him. Um, I didn't actually hire him at all, but our, staff, our uh, elders hired him. Uh, and he spent a couple years here and uh, with the goal and the uh, call to plant a church in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, where he still continues to live. Since then, uh, has become the president of Communitas International, which is a uh, church planning organization that we have partnered with, new community has partnered with for over a decade now. Uh, and he is uh, an incredible communicator of the word, but more than all of those things, He's a faithful, faithful man and loves Jesus very, very much. And we are incredibly excited to have him back communicating this morning. So welcome up to the stage, Jeff Reinhardt. Thanks, Kev, for making all that nice stuff up about me. That was really sweet. Good morning, Newcom. How are we all doing today? Okay, so uh, last time I was here... Um, I think we got to like 52 minutes and then uh, Kevin and Russ started running down the, the aisle way here, essentially saying, dude, you're done. Um, so hopefully it won't be uh, any more than 49 today. Um, but we do have a couple of things going for us. One is that I have scripted a lot of what is going to be said today. So if I follow the script, uh, we should do just fine. And I drank this entire thing of, of water uh, and have done nothing with that yet. So you have that, you have that going for you. Mm, it is a joy uh, to be here in this place. Uh, I love this community. Um, I love you people. I love the leadership. And uh, what a joy and an honor um, to be on the journey together uh, with all of us together. The uh, message today is entitled The Incarnation and Hope. Uh, with a subtitle of This Changes Everything. I would like to open with just a short verse of prayer, which comes from Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down to make your name known. If that's not a good prelude to the incarnation, I'm not sure what is. So here we are on the first Sunday of Advent and the beginning of a new liturgical calendar. And uh, the theme for today is to introduce the incarnation, of course, and then also to um, have some thoughts on hope. So given that our thoughts are on hope, I will open with this. All of us right now are spinning on a rock in a vast space a space far bigger than we can imagine, alone in our corner of the universe. And despite our creative minds and advances in science, mystery surrounds us. If one were to seriously contemplate our status, the mysteries that abound around us and the challenges of our present, like climate change, rising divisions among people, and escalating hatred, 
one could easily spin into despair. And on this rock, within the next hour or up to 90 years, for some of us, everyone who can hear my voice will be dead. Merry Christmas. We um, understand some of that despair, but I can assure you that that was a similar despair that was being experienced in the ancient world, just not knowing. And then something happened that changes everything. The prologue of John, uh, if there are words that I have ever read in my life, these words have been the most transforming for me just the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. We have an amazing resource um, in Dale Bruner. Dale Bruner wrote a phenomenal commentary on John. There's excellent uh, scholarship in there. Um, and I'm drawing on some of his scholarship and some of these thoughts on the prologue. Um, first of all, John wrote this letter uh, quite late in the canon of New Testament, probably the latest writings to the New Testament, estimated to be around 90 AD, maybe even to the first decade of the second century. Now, by this time, there were 100,000 Greek Christians to every single Jewish Christian. The reason John wrote this epistle, was, or this gospel, is because there were so many misconceptions floating around by this time. No, a number of years had passed, and there were um, disputes and misconceptions as to the deity of Jesus. Who was Jesus really? So John set about to write this gospel to dispel some myths that had crept up over time. He also wanted to add to what had already existed in uh, the church at the time, which were the three synoptic gospels. So his gospel is um, very, very different, and it's different on purpose. By this time, the church already had the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, John bore witness to these gospels. Uh, he saw them as uh, fully accepted in their truthfulness, but there was lacking in them for John some of the things that were um, significant that had been done by Jesus. The other three Gospels only refer to about one year of Jesus' public ministry. All of them only include one Passover. John's Gospel includes three Passovers, so there's a different time frame expressed there. John, however, has no account of the birth of Jesus, of his baptism, of his temptations, John tells nothing of the Last Supper, nothing of Gethsemane, and nothing of the Ascension. It has no word on the healing of any people possessed by evil spirits. It has none of the parable stories Jesus told, which are such a prominent part of the other Gospels. In John, the speeches of Jesus are often a whole chapter long, quite unlike the shorter, unforgettable sayings of the other three. But John alone tells of the marriage feast at Cana, of the coming of Nicodemus to Jesus, of the woman of Samaria, of the raising of Lazarus, of the way in which Jesus washed his disciples' feet, of Jesus' wonderful teaching about the Holy Spirit. John alone gives us very specific details about the disciples and their personalities. 
You see, these are memories of a witness, somebody who was there, somebody who saw what happened, somebody who noted the details. And if you look closely in John, you'll find them. John uses very specific distances between locations that are verifiable. Uh, John refers to specific types of bread that were used in different circumstances at different meals. John gives us the exact weight of myrrh and aloes that were used at the burial of Jesus. John was there. So John's words hold some authority. So why did John write these things? What was the purpose of John writing? We can go to the end of John's gospel and find out what John's purpose was. He says, but these things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. That is why John writes his gospel. Who is the audience of this gospel? Well, we mentioned earlier there are already 100,000 Greek believers to every single Jewish believer. But for them, the concept of Messiah would have meant nothing. They had no idea what Messiah meant or why Messiah was important. So John now has the opportunity to inform this new audience what this is all about. And so he used words and he used images that were very familiar to them. In the very beginning of John, we see uh, the word word used. In the beginning was the word. In the Greek, that's the word logos. In Greek thought, the idea of the word or logos began way back about 560 BC. This word or logos was the reason of God. The logos was the principal order by which things um, worked under the universe and how they continued to exist. Further, this logos was believed to dwell within man. It was nothing less than the mind of God controlling the world and everything in it. But it left people guessing as to the identity of God, desperate and groping for answers. They understood the concept of logos. They didn't know who this logos was. They got the concept. They didn't know the who. So John uses this familiar term, logos, but then he goes on to say some really important things about this logos. This logos was with God in the beginning. This logos was the one through whom all things were created. This logos has a name. This logos is acceptable. Now think about uh, the power of words today. The power of words today, I think, are stronger than any other time, primarily because of the medium in which we can use words, primarily because we can use words, typically very harmful words, in ways that um, we don't have to encounter people face-to-face -face with. So the power of words, I think, today is critically important, but the power of words are always important in how we come to know and to understand things. So John, in this gospel, he uses these words, familiar terms, and it goes out to Jews and to Greeks to tell them that in Jesus Christ, this creating, illuminating, controlling, sustaining mind of God had come to earth. Logos has come, and Logos is real and known. He came to tell them that men and women need no longer guess and grope. All they had to do was to look at Jesus, and they could see the very nature and the very being of God. So John starts his writings with three words. Those three words are in the beginning. Have we heard those before? 
Yeah, they're the exact same three words that start Genesis in the Old Testament. But in Genesis, when we see in the beginning, we learn what God did. That is what Genesis tells us, that God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis begins with a divine doing. But now in John, John begins with a divine being. In the beginning, same concept, same things going on. In the beginning was the being, the word, the logos, Jesus So John is very specific in that regard. Now, we don't get the specific name of Jesus until verse 17 of John, uh, chapter 1, but we all know the one that John has in mind when he writes. And so the word literally comes forth. The word identifies God and Jesus, and the word communicates with language and voice that we can listen to, that we can hear, that we can understand. So how do we come to know in our everyday lives? How do we come to know what people who are important to us are thinking? Well, we know when we talk to them. And we all know important how important conversation is. So here we learn from John that the great God speaks to the human race most specifically and specially in Jesus. The ancient world, like we today, long to know who God is and what God thinks and what God does. Now, when I was 15, I was searching and groping and searching, and and I had these questions. I um, had sensed the presence of God. I grew up in an environment where I was exposed um, to liturgy and to church on a regular basis, but it still seemed like I was grasping at things and, and wanted to know. And I had a friend who said, oh, I know what we'll do. Let's read the book of John together. And it changed my life because I was seeking after something that John gave me answers to. I was listening for the first time to what I considered to be the voice of God, the heart of God, the who of God. Not a concept, not an icon on a wall, but the actual living, being, breathing of Jesus. So in Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thoughts, his deepest heart, and showing us in deeds um, that are as profound as his words, that Jesus is God. And we as the believing human race now have experienced deep communion with God through this logos, and his grace, love, mercy, and help have been with us ever since. So what does this have to do with hope? Well, first of all, I would say that true hope is born out of hearing God's voice. And that's what John is giving to this desperate world at the time. There is a voice. There is a who. We have identified. He has identified himself to us. And we can listen. So hope first is born out of hearing God's voice, hearing this logos. Now, we're going to display the first few uh, verses of John up here, and I'm just going to comment them on them quite quickly. The first opening announcement of John's gospel, it tells us the when of the word. When was the word? In the beginning was the word. The second one teaches us where the word was, and the word was with God. And the third tells us who the word was, and the word was God. The second verse affirms that this word and God are inseparable since the beginning. 
So these first two verses have now, in just a few words of introduction, no less, taught us that this divine revealer, the word, Jesus, who is to be the subject of the remainder of John's words, is the eternal word of God, who has always been in fellowship with God. So we are not simply meeting a great man when we encounter Jesus in this gospel. From the very beginning, John wants to be crystal clear about the unique subject, Jesus, and object, the world, his people, of his work. So we are meeting the very real God and a very real human being. Now in the other gospels and epistles of the New Testament, the divinity of Jesus becomes clear by degrees. They, it kind of builds on itself and then there's this crescendo or, or um, conclusion, ergo Jesus is God. But John makes Christ's divinity clear in the very first two verses. Now as we look through verses 3a through 5b, it says then that all things came into being through him, which says that Jesus is an element responsible for creation. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him, in union with the creator, God and Jesus is one, was life, which tells us that we have access to not only the incarnation of God with us, but to salvation in him. And the life was the light of all people. That shows us the revelation. God is revealing to us these truths so that we no longer have to grope in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. John referring, is referring here to the resurrection, that's the darkness, and the light, which is the church. And the darkness did not overcome it. The crucifixion did not overcome the life of Christ. He overcame the crucifixion. So John is saying that we know God by knowing Jesus. He is saying that God was and is and ever shall be like Jesus. But we couldn't realize that until Jesus came, until we met him, until we heard him, until we were in community actually with him. You see, no one can tell us what God is like, what God's will is for us, what God's love and heart and mind are like. No one can tell us those things as Jesus can tell us. This is the Lord that reveals the nature of God to us. This is the Lord who gives us life. This is the Lord who was the light of the world. This is the greatest, most illuminating, most saving, most wonderful news of all time. And it should be for us today as it was for the ancient world then. It is the foundation of hope. John is assuring his audience that what, or better stated, who, was once unknown, is now known. God has come forth. So with that foundation on the incarnation, let's explore hope a little bit more. We know that the foundation of hope is a who. It is a subject. The foundation of hope is Jesus. It is a who. It is a person. So then I have to ask you, when you think of hope for yourselves, do you think of hope as subjective or objective? We need to be very clear the difference between the subject of a sentence, for example, versus the word subjective. What does that actually mean? There is a difference. And what do we mean when we say objective? So if I were to take hope and try to conclude or understand if hope was objective or subjective, I might look at it this way. Objective hope, the Cal Bears. I went to the University of California at Berkeley. I have been a long time, go Bears! Yes! They beat UCLA, the baby bears yesterday. 
Um, I have been a long-suffering Cal football and basketball fan. Now, while I would love to just say how grateful and excited I am that we have the best rugby team in the world and have for years, um, and, and great water polo, I mean, all the, those are really, really good. Uh, but football and basketball just have not been very good. So I have objective hope in the Cal Bears. I have objective hope in a team composed of players and coaches that I don't even know. My hope is in the object of attained, attending and hopefully witnessing a win in the Rose Bowl. In other words, I'm basically hopeless. I think most of us, though, operate in life out of an objective hope. Objective hope is dependent on circumstances. Objective hope is based on a what. Like the ancients, when we have that in mind, when we have the what but no clue as to the who, we are left groping for answers. And if our objects do not come into being, we assume that we have no favor with the logos. That's objective hope. I have hope in a what, not in a who. It's based on circumstances. And if that doesn't come to happen, the Bears have not been to a Rose Bowl in my lifetime. I doubt they will go to one in my lifetime. What do I draw from that? What conclusions can I draw? If there's no who to explain it, if it's only a what, the only conclusion I can possibly come to is, God must not like the Bears wait a minute, I like the bears. If God doesn't like the bears, God must not like me. That's objective hope. When there's no who connected, when we have no connection to the logos, objective hope can really be hopeless. Now, subject. We have the subject of hope, a who, which is Jesus. But there's also the idea of subjective hope. So what do we mean when we say subjective? In most ways, we would say that subjectivity is based on personal experiences and viewpoints, which is true. You have a subjective understanding of certain things in your life. You see them through a lens through which only you see them. Somebody else would see something through an entirely different lens, and your opinion is subjective to your lenses, while their opinion is subjective to their own, and those things either may or may not be in concert with each other. That is subjectivity. It's based on your experience. But that makes this form of subjective hope also a what and a how-based analysis. You determine what you're seeing, you decide how you're seeing it, and you base your hope, subjective hope, on those two elements. But again, notice that the true subject, the who, is missing. And there are many, many problems with this approach to hope. The first one is what we would call meritocracy. If things are subjective and we only see them through a certain perspective and we draw conclusions and judgments based on those perspectives, and we combine that with essentially what makes our system go in the West, which is meritocracy, we end up looking through things at a lens of what is deserved or merited and what is undeserved or unmerited. Now, just think about what happens when that comes to something like hope or love or faith. 
Do those things become something that have merit, that are merited for some, but are not merited for others? Meritocracy can get us into a lot of trouble. Capitalism depends on meritocracy. Um, if you want to learn more about meritocracy, Richard Rohr has done some incredible writings on this subject. I encourage you to, uh, to look him up. But meritocracy floods in when we have this subjective analysis of hope. That's the first thing that can happen. The second is that this form of subjective hope is dependent on judgment, right? It's the lenses. What do you experience? How do you experience it? And then what judgments do you make on how that may be duplicated into the future? Now, when we make judgments, I would say we oftentimes don't have enough data to actually come to the conclusions we come to. Uh, an example of, of this would be, um, you go out for food. It, it's a new kind of food for you. Let's say you're going to try uh, Indian food for the very first time. And it just so happens that that particular day, whatever meat was brought into the restaurant was tainted. So you eat Indian food and that night, is not fun for you. What's your conclusion about Indian food? Now, you may have the maturity to say that was just, you know, it was bad meat, it, 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 that was just a bad meal, it just, it, whatever. But more than likely, you're going to take that one data point and you're going to draw a conclusion and go to the place of, I don't like Indian food. I don't eat Indian food where someone else may have the lens of, Indian food is the greatest thing in the world. You, no, it's not, because when I eat it, it makes me sick. One experience, one data point, okay? Um, that creates judgments that don't have enough data, but that also informs our subjective understanding of hope. Now, when we blend aspiration, I aspire or I desire to have hope, with judgment, a strange thing happens. You see, we can only attain subjective hope by having an other. Subjective hope requires us, through meritocracy and other means, and judgment, it requires us to have an other, an enemy, a scapegoat, something to compare to and something to compete with. And what that does is it takes hope and it turns it into a commodity. And it presents hope as a scarcity. Now, think Econ 101 and supply and demand here. When something has scarcity, it means that there's a value to it, that there is more demand for it than it can possibly supply. So a number of things happen in a scarce situation. Prices go up, people become more protective, they tend to want to preserve and protect the scarce item. All right? When hope or any one of joy, peace, love, when any of those become commoditized in our mind, when we put lenses of subjectivity and have judgment based on them, we get into a lot of trouble. We treat them as scarcities. So here's what happens when that happens. Um, we create the scarcity mindset instead of having a sufficiency mindset. A scarcity mindset always preserves, it always protects, it is often not generous, it assumes there is not enough to go around, and it focuses on the needs and wants of the self. Sufficiency on the other hand, sufficiency asserts that there is enough for everyone, and knowing there is enough inspires sharing, collaboration, and contribution. 
And so here is the danger. If our hope is aspirational and depends on judgment, and if it is approached from a scarcity mindset, hatred lurks very nearby. If something is scarce, in order to rationalize our desire for and holding of that scarce thing, we must hold in lesser regard or dehumanize anyone else who is seeking the scarce object. Did you hear that? Apply it to anything. Love, hope, peace, resources. If anything is scarce, and if we apply judgment to it, we must dehumanize something else in order to rationalize for ourselves how we could possibly take that thing and preserve it for ourselves. And when we go into that place, here's a check. If you're finding that you have anger for what is not instead of joy in what is, you're living off of a scarcity mindset. If you hold anger for what is not instead of joy in what is, you've got a scarcity mindset. So hope then becomes a contest to be won. Now, if anything can be won, what is required? A loser. If anything can be won, a loser is required. Now, just apply this to other areas of our lives. Why, why am I even saying this to y'all? Because as I have been thinking this through, th this is what happens whenever I prepare teachings and, and lessons and ideas. And this is a theory I'm working on. So you're, I'm trying it on you for the very first time. But they come to me because they apply to me. This is how I have been functioning for a very long time. This is how I have been rationalizing virtually every decision I make. This is how I rationalize why I get or want a thing when that thing cannot be had by somebody else. What does it apply to for you? Where does it apply in your life? Does it apply to Jesus? Does it apply to God? Does it apply to hope and peace and love and joy? If one of our reactions to hearing a message like this is, is to have a, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, I hear that, but, I would just caution you to say, um, yeah, buts, that reaction is a pretty sure sign of a scarcity mindset. It's also a pretty sure sign of a subjective way of looking at things. I would also tell you, um, you can check it yourselves. I've done a full search. There's not, there's not one yeah, but from Jesus. There just isn't. Um, you see, Jesus' answer is yes, not yeah, but. So here's what I fear. I fear that sometimes what we say is hope is actually hatred in a Christian decorated mask. So what are you wearing? Now, here's the good news. The work you've been doing here at Newcom, the world is listening, folks. Um, the, the world is listening to what's been happening here over the last month, month and a half. Uh, I'm hearing from places outside of Spokane and outside of Washington and Idaho uh, about what you've been navigating. And here's what's so beautiful about it. You are denouncing a scarcity mindset. You're denouncing it. 
And you're denouncing it because Jesus denounces it. You are listening to the truth of Jesus and you are applying it practically in community. And what better thing in the world can we possibly do than that? So hope is not subjective. Hope is a subject. Now you may be asking, Jeff, how do you give a whole talk on hope without defining hope itself? And yes, there are Bible verses that tell us what hope is. I hope you look them up. But I'm encouraging you to stop seeing hope as a what. Hope is a who. Hope is a subject, and that who is Jesus. You want a definition for hope? The definition is Jesus. Paul writes this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Grace is sufficient for you. Jesus tells us that he is sufficient for us. Sufficiency means there is no scarcity. There is no end. There is no bottom. It is. It just is. Paul also says in Ephesians, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups, in this context, Jew and Gentile, into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And this is the work I'm seeing happening here at Newcom. Would this be the work that we engage in everywhere? Would this be the work that you engage in in your family dynamics? Would this be the work that you engage in uh, wherever you work or make a living? Would this be the dynamic you engage in in talking and existing with neighbors um, in your city, in your states, in your county? Would this be the attitude that we take, that the dividing wall has been broken down between us? Would you take this approach on Twitter and social media? Would that we, those called, to live the Jesus life, would that we actually live it? We would have hope. The world would change and we would be transformed. You see, true hope encourages shalom, even in difficult circumstances. True hope tears down walls. It never builds walls. True hope never builds walls. Not ever, never. If we're building walls, literally or figuratively, we are not engaging in hope. So I have to ask us, do we know him? Do we know the subject, not about, not the object? Do you know him? Do you believe because John said to us at the end of his gospel that he had written these things, that why? So we may believe and that we may have life in his name. And the true hope of Jesus is sufficient for you and sufficient for every created thing. No exceptions, none whatsoever. Now, remember this incarnation in the ancient world, it changes everything, right? It changes everything for us. So the question to ask then is, are you changed? Are you in the process of being changed by this truth and this reality? Do you approach hope from a scarcity mindset or do you approach hope from a sufficient mindset?
you approach it from a scarcity mindset, my prayer for you is that you would be changed. Because lastly, true hope always, always generates kindness. So if you are existing in kindness with no dividing walls, good on you. You are living into the source of hope. You are living into Jesus. And my prayer for you, for all of you and for this community, is that you and all of us would experience true hope in this season and always. Let's pray. God, what a gift you have given us, the gift of the incarnation, that what was unknown is now known. Holy Spirit, equip us and enable us to know, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, to know you. And God, may you equip us to be transformed, to be doers, to see hope and love and peace and joy, to see them all as sufficient and not scarce, that they are available to everyone, everywhere, no exceptions. Help us to tear down these walls and to replace them with a sufficiency mindset. And God, prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate again the truth of your being known among us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Before we uh, enter into the benediction, just wanted to share a quick thought as I was back there. Um, I have probably always had, to some degree, a scarcity mindset in all kinds of areas. I know financially, there was always this thing in me and my family that um, God would provide, but man, somebody else would lack if he did, right? But there's only so much to go around. I remember growing up and constantly our family was in need financially. So I had this mindset throughout life that, man, I don't know, at the end of the day, our needs will be met. And I find that that mindset creeps up all the time. It doesn't just creep up with finances. It creeps up with relationships. You creep up in friendships. Maybe even creeped up at Thanksgiving. See the stuffing go by and you wonder if it'll come back around. Like, it's only so much to go around, right? It, it comes up all the time. But here's one thing that I have noticed over time, is that whenever my eyes are not on the thing that I think is lacking, but they're on him, I don't ever feel like it's going to be scarce. If I get my eyes off the financial need, the friend need, the relationship, the whatever, the job, the healing, whatever it is, and I put it on Christ, it's then that I'm reminded that he lacks nothing. And out of that, I can live with generosity. I can live with hospitality and welcoming. I can live with kindness all the other things that Jeff mentioned this morning. 
And that's my hope, that as we step into Advent here, that this month would be a month where scarcity mindset takes a back seat and we live into kindness and generosity, et cetera, et cetera, because the central focus of our attention this month is Jesus Christ having come and been present with us and still is in a space where he's continually coming. And we look and wait for his final return. Why don't you stand with me? We'll do our benediction. It may or may not be on the screen. You can just follow along with me. New come. May God give us the strength to live in hope, to proclaim the disruptive and inconvenient gospel of God's love for all people, and to walk towards the kingdom that is coming. May we sit at the feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to know his presence and to walk with him in the tension of joy and sadness, peace and destruction, prosperity and poverty. May the Holy Spirit guide us into new springs of hope as we learn and relearn to love God, each other, and ourselves. Go now from this place and walk in the blessing of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.